Today we continue in our series in Daniel. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 10. Just two more messages here in this book of Daniel before we, we lay it aside for another part of Scripture. And uh, today we come to an, the beginning of the final vision of the book. Um, this is actually part of a whole unit of Daniel 10, 11, and 12 is all together. And so this is a bit of an introduction. But in it, we see something unique that draws our attention to something that is going on as we speak right now that we may not be aware of. We're talking on a bit on the topic of spiritual warfare. And the title of the message is Otherworldly War. On the, the topic of spiritual warfare, C.S. Lewis is one that I've relied on a bit for some helpful guidance. Um, I remember what he taught through books like The Screwtape Letters. And if you haven't read that book, the Screwtape Letters it was a, a, a masterful perspective on spiritual warfare through an imaginative dialogue from one master demon to an apprentice. And actually what you only get in Screwtape's Letters is the master's dialogue. Presumably, there's another part to the conversation in the book that's not there. Um, Wormwood is the apprentice demon that has asked his master questions on how to best go about tempting and overcoming Christ's kingdom in real-life situations, particularly dealing with uh, believers in Christ. And screw tape is what we get in the book, a response of how best to sort of trip us up. It's not a very long book, um, but it is one that, that Lewis put great care into. What it essentially tells us is that there is an enemy, and he seeks my destruction, and this is war. Now, reflecting on writing the Screwtape Letters, Lewis remarked himself, and I quote, Though I have never written anything more easily... I never wrote with less enjoyment. The moral universe of Screwtape thrust Lewis into an environment of what he calls dust, grit, thirst, and itch. And he said, I could only stay there so long. He said, it almost smothered me before I was done. Now, Lewis allowed his mind to enter such a world in order to awaken those like us out of a bit of a spiritual stupor. And I, I commend that work to you with eyes wide open. I think all of us, myself including, must be aware of what is truly happening all around me, behind the veil. Because it's taking place, engaged in by my deliverer for my good and his glory. And that's the topic of our text today from Daniel chapter 10. Before we get into it, I want to pray. Father, this morning we come to you acknowledging that you are the divine warrior. That you are not just simply a God um, sitting on a pale throne, 
enthroned in light and majesty and that you are inactive, but that you are very active, that you always have been active, that you use the resources at your disposal for our good and for your glory. And we, by virtue of entering into your kingdom, are engaged in something, whether we realize it or not, is quite serious. And so we need your help. And so this morning we ask for your guidance and your direction, the illumination of your spirit, looking through your word. And we confess that we sometimes take these things far too lightly. We ask that we would not, by your grace, we pray that you would uh, encourage us to engage in the ways that you have empowered us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I said, this, this passage in Daniel Chan is actually an introduction to a larger section that ends the book. It takes place in the con- context of a great conflict, a great war, which strangely is meant to comfort Daniel. Now, as we see here... Uh, that Daniel is actually still in Babylon and he is addressed again by his Babylonian name in the text. The time period for this happening is probably around 536 BC. That's where we pick up our text in Daniel 1, Daniel 10, verse 1, that is. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. And in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Upphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, and his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves." So I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. And then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, Understand the words that I spoke, I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up, trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael One of the chief princes came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision 
is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips, and then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spake to me, as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against those, these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, Daniel, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. It's a strange text, as are all of these visions in Daniel chapter 10. As I said, Daniel is at the end of his days, the end of his life, old but still in Babylon. And Babylonian empire has already come and gone, and now the Persians are in power. And Daniel seems to go out along the banks of the Tigris River. Now, he has resided in Babylon throughout his entire exile. To go to the Tigris River and be on its banks meant that he had left the city and gone at least 20 miles. Some say as much as 100 miles away. And as an old man going out into the desert, out into the wilderness, uh, this would be a challenging thing. Probably not as challenging, though, as if he were to decide that he would return to Israel. That was an option for him. Daniel, we believe, never went back to Jerusalem, never went back to the place that he was born at. But by this time, during the reign of Cyrus the king, in his third year, that puts the date at 536 B.C., Cyrus gave a decree in 536 that the people of the Hebrew people could return. And, and as we come to this text, it says that, that Daniel is in great mourning. It says that for three weeks he is put on sackcloth and ashes. That's a Hebrew way of talking that he's in, in mourning. And he's gone out to the desert, and I presume that he's gone out there to pray, but he's old, and he, and he takes some guys with him to help him. And then he sees this great vision, <clears throat> and it's almost similar to the experience of the Apostle Paul in, in Acts chapter 9, where Paul saw and heard things, but yet the people around him couldn't see what Paul saw. He's out here along the Tigris River, and he's in mourning. And we could do a bit of speculation. I don't think it's too far off to, to say that one of the reasons might be that the return of the Hebrew people to their homeland has not gone as hopefully as they expected. If you read in Ezra chapter 1 and 2 and Ezra 4, then you, you get to see a glimpse of the people returning with Zerubbabel. 
and it did not go well. They were very despondent, very sorrowful as they returned to the place that their ancestors were and everything was an absolute wreck. And even as they start to build things, this nothing seems to go right because people are living in that land and they're hostile towards them. And, and I wonder if Daniel has had this understanding that when the exile would end, things would go back to the way they were, but they're not going back as seamlessly as he thought. And so he goes out into the desert and he mourns. And he needs comfort. And so Daniel is still serving in the court. He's actually serving Darius the Mede. I presume that this takes place after his experience in the lion's den with Darius. This is the same guy, the same king. But yet he has some leave time and he goes off into the, the desert along the Tigris River. Maybe Daniel didn't want to return uh, to uh, the homeland because he thought that God had positioned him in too important and too strategic a place. That he could do more for his people still serving in the court of Darius in Babylon than he could if he returned. I mean, after all, he's an old man at this point, And most of the jobs... Uh, initially, as you go back to the homeland, are going to be building and, and maintenance and, and hard work, and it's going to be maybe even too taxing for him at his age. And so he doesn't go. He stays. And I think that's why the, the author here reminds us that his name is Belteshazzar. He's still going by that Babylonian name because he's still serving in the Babylonian court. Ultimately, this man is looking for the establishment of Yahweh's kingdom, of God's kingdom, while human kingdoms still oppress the people of God. But the, the passage opens in the context of war, which leads to the question, what kind of war are we talking about? We're led to believe that this isn't simply human conflict that we're talking about. It's spiritual battle. Something that has been thematically referenced throughout the Bible in ways that you may not recognize. Over and over again throughout the Old Testament, God, Yahweh, is described as a divine warrior. And that's a, that's a way of speaking about him that way that, that's not PC in our day. You don't hear it very often, even from the pulpit, of talking about God as a warrior. But the Old Testament speaks of it a lot. I'll give you a couple of examples. When, when the people of Israel finally get liberated from Egypt, in, in Exodus chapter 6, Yahweh told Moses, I will redeem my people out of Egypt. That was before the ten plagues began. Moses creates and crafts a song in Exodus 15 that celebrates the ten plagues and the Passover and that God redeemed his people exactly as he said he would. But the song describes him as a warrior that fought for his people and was victorious. That's one example. When the sun stood still in Joshua chapter 10 for the people of Israel to win a battle, it was said that the divine warrior, their God, fought for them. It happens over and over again. Isaiah 43, Zephaniah 3, Psalm 24. If you know that great psalm, and you can, you can hear the, the guys from third day singing it, the, who is the king of glory? 
you know, because they all sing in the lower registers for some reason because they're children of the 90s. You know, that king of glory, how is he described in that psalm? Why is he the king of glory? Because he is the divine warrior who defeated the enemy, the great enemy, and the enemy of his people. He is the one who fought for them, who went before them. The Old Testament is full of this imagery all over the place. And that is what is behind this chapter as well. He does not fight only for his people, though. Sometimes he fights against them when they are in opposition to his will. In fact, that's the way it's described in Jeremiah 21, that his people are so rebellious against him that he fights against them because they are in direct opposition to what he wants them to be. The entire exile happens. They go into Babylonian exile and captivity because he fought against them. And thus the entire exile is a a result of him being a divine warrior. Now even though Yahweh isn't mentioned in this passage, he is described in the Old Testament as the Lord of hosts. And what is a host? The multitude of heavenly hosts that were praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace with all in whom he finds favor. Those are words that the angelic host proclaimed over the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. But they were a host. They were not just a group of angels that were hanging out that day. They were an army which the Lord, the divine warrior, commands. And here we see them in this passage, at least one or two of them. As we begin looking at this passage, verses 1 through 10, or 1 through 9 actually, are a heavenly vision. Daniel, in this physical reality, is given a glimpse that there is a spiritual reality behind what he does. And Daniel, in a way, interjects into that spiritual reality as he prays. Now, the vision, as I said, took place in the third year of Cyrus the Great. Daniel is residing in Babylon. He's very old at this point. And he felt that he could be of better use in his current context. He is mourning. He refrains from from eating meat and wine as part of this fasting that he's doing as well, which tells us also, that gives us a little glimpse into why I understood Daniel chapter 1, where he took the special diet of not eating the king's meat, that he did that strategically, that it wasn't for any other reason, because now we learn that he has a diet of meat and wine, but he's refraining for them, which is a good habit, a good habit of, of spiritual discipline to fast. There's something great about fasting from certain things that we regularly rely on to sort of awaken us physically and mentally and emotionally and even spiritually to the reality that we need God far more than we need these things. And so fasting helps us rely upon him greatly. Daniel's doing this to help awaken himself to this reality. Likely he lived on vegetables and water here for a period of three weeks to ready himself to pray and to gain a special hearing from the Lord. 
And as he does this, he takes place in a solitary manner, much like Jesus did in the Gospels, to gain perspective and avoid distraction. He goes out into the, to a solitary pray, place to pray. And he mentions that he did not use lotions or, or oils for this period, which it's part of his fast. To, um, and this doesn't mean that you know, he, he didn't bring his oil of Olay with him or that he's not getting pampered out there. What it means is that he lives in a, in a hot, dry, arid climate, which I'm reminded of this time of year. I have the skin that cracks naturally. If I don't use lotion, it will crack and bleed. It just does. Uh, that's just how I'm made. He lives in another climate where they would have to apply that daily so it doesn't happen to him. But he's actually foregoing that for three weeks so that he would be, again, awakened to the spiritual realities around him. It was all voluntary on his part. Nothing is prescribed for him to do this exactly as he is doing it. But in the middle of doing this, Daniel's mind was likely on the topic of, of deliverance. It reads that, that his fast happened in the first month. Some of the context behind this is this is the first month of the Hebrew calendar year. It goes by the month of Nisan. That would actually be the month of, of Passover. The first year, uh, month of the calendar year is when we have Easter. And so his mind is on his calendar rhythm and also on his people back home. And he's thinking about deliverance because the Passover is a remembrance of God's deliverance in Egypt. And much of the exile is about seeking a second exodus, a second deliverance. And so his mind is on deliverance. And I bet that motivates his fast. And now he's celebrating a bit what God has done in the past. And then God comes to him. What he sees in this visionary experience, it says, terrifies him. It is the appearance of a man dressed in linen, wearing a gold belt. A bit of, of Old Testament context helps us know what this is description of. Because if we were to look back in, in the book of Exodus uh, 28 or... or um, even Revelation 1, we find that this is the description of someone who's a priest. This is priestly garb. This person has a physical description to him, a human-like physical description, but it's almost statuesque. It's almost like, like this is a human being, but larger than a human being in, in appearance, not necessarily stature. He, he's, he's, he's a person, but yet he, he has a face like lightning and arms and legs that are bronze and his eyes are ablaze as torches. And, and this is like, it's like he's encompassed in something called chrysolite, which makes it look like a sculpture. He spoke with a voice that boomed like a thunderous noise of a million people shouting all at the same time. Based on descriptions like this, when you compare Ezekiel chapter 1 or Revelation chapter 1, I'm inclined to see that this is no mere angel. But this is Jesus Christ himself incarnate. The pre-incarnate Christ. And that he comes and 
and, and is there to comfort Daniel, but it's something that Daniel can't take in. It's too much for him, and he faints. He goes to sleep from this experience. The person's identity, albeit, is a little ambiguous. But I think the person has come to bring comfort to Daniel, yet the whole experience is too much for him. He goes, maybe graciously, into an immediate sleep to allow him to rest and recuperate rather than struggle to comprehend what he probably couldn't comprehend anyway. But when he awakes, it's my understanding that it's not the pre-incarnate Christ who speaks to him, but someone else. And I'll say why in a moment. Now, I, I hold these, this interpretation of this text loosely. There's great debate over how this goes as far as scholars are concerned. But in verses 10 through 14, we get a reason for the delay. Now, there was a message that was given for Daniel when he started praying three weeks ago, but it hasn't come to him. And there's a, Daniel awakes to hear that things have been delayed from his sleep. Someone touches him. I think we can assume that some time has passed and Daniel has recovered. And many assume that the one who touches him is the person who boomed in appearance before he slept. Others see it as a second person, which is what I understand to be happening here. But first of all, the being tells Daniel that he is greatly loved. That's the most important thing for him to recognize. For him to know, to understand the words that I speak to you, but first know that you are greatly loved. This being has been sent to Daniel. The whole reason for this information, the grace is given to him to understand the ability to rest, the coming of this seemingly supernatural celestial being is because Daniel is loved. He's been sent to Daniel as a messenger. And in the Hebrew and the Greek, the exact same word for messenger is also angel. And so you have to understand via context what we're talking about. Is it just a normal messenger like UPS, or is this an actual celestial being? Here we think it's a celestial being. Daniel is again afraid, but this, not so afraid as before. He's able to stand. As the angel tells him to fear not, because this message was dispatched to him because of Daniel's prayers through that time of fasting. In fact, it went out 21 days ago. And then we hear the reason for the delay. The angel was somehow prevented from coming to Daniel, either because he was preoccupied with something else, or what he was preoccupied with opposed him to such a great degree that he couldn't come. And the person that it's described that opposes him is described as the prince of Persia. Now, if we were to take this literally as a prince of Persia, we don't... That would mean Cyrus's or Darius's son? That's not in the context here. That's not who's opposing him. And remember, this is an angelic being that's being opposed. What would an earthly king be able to do to oppose him? We're led to believe that the prince of Persia is not a human being. And why is he described as the prince of Persia? The context of this vision is war. And we can assume that this opposition is an angelic being. And if it's war, then it's a demonic being. The prince is some kind of demonic force that is connected, for some reason, 
geographically to the location of Persia. It's an adversary to angelic forces. And while we can't be certain who this is, maybe we could surmise, maybe it's a bit of speculation, that this being is very powerful, very formidable, able to occupy attention and resources, and it may be influencing the king of of Persia for demonic reasons. I mean, if I was thinking strategically and, and I wanted to influence the world against the kingdom of Yahweh, then I would set up shop trying to influence things where the powers are in the human world. And so it makes sense that there would be somebody strategically positioned to influence the kingdom of Persia because they are in power at the time. And it says that after he goes out, the prince of Greece will come in, meaning somebody else is going to be positioned to do just this in a demonic way for the next realm. If you've ever read, there's some some fictional books that I can't get out of my mind once I read them. They they forever color the way that I I view this. Uh, An author by the name of Frank Peretti uh, wrote several books, and I I recommend almost all of them to you. Uh, But a couple of them are done in this imaginative way uh, of describing the world that's behind the veil. Um, One of them is called This Present Darkness, and the other one is Piercing the Darkness. Now, Peretti admits himself that he was creating a fictional account. They're not meant to be gospel truth, but again, I think just like Lewis's screw tape letters, they're meant to awaken us out of a spiritual stupor. This prince of Persia is some kind of demonic force that's an adversary And I wonder if he might actually be the adversary. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Satan is described as the great adversary of God's people. Not the adversary of Christ. He's not up to that level. He's not even close. But is he the adversary against God's people? You bet. He's He's your adversary. And the reason why I'm led to believe that this could be Satan is because this angel who comes to him, I can't rectify that he would be the same as the pre-incarnated Christ, who's earlier in the passage, but this angel that comes and speaks to him with the message that was dispatched three weeks ago but yet couldn't get away is only able to get away because Michael comes and helps him. The reason why he's able to get away is because Michael is known as the great archangel. In fact, he's the only archangel ever listed in Scripture. People have speculated that whether maybe Gabriel is an archangel as well. When it says in Isaiah chapter 14 and, and also with further information from Ezekiel chapter 28 that when Satan fell or the, the one who is the great morning star, fell. It said that he took one-third of heaven's hosts with him. Um, people have, have speculated that he was an archangel that took with him those forces, and there were two other archangels for the other two-thirds. That would be Gabriel and then Michael. And only after Michael, an archangel, comes to help this angel is he able to get away with the message that God had dispatched him with. That seems to be my understanding of what's happening here. 
that there is a war going on behind the scenes. And there is someone who opposes us and seeks our destruction. Michael is described as the archangel in the book of Jude as well. And he seemed to need to come as a reinforcement. Later on in, in chapter 11, we read that, that Michael, uh, or sorry, chapter 12, that Michael is the archangel for the people of God. According to the popular Christian theology, only Michael could have withstood Satan. And so that's why he might be the prince of Persia. All of this celestial activity is so that Daniel can understand something. That he can understand something about God's plan for his people. That despite the difficulties they're facing in returning from exile, it's about their present and their future. It's all motivated by God's great love for them and his desire for them to know that they can entrust themselves to him as a sovereign God, their sovereign God. Now, then it says that, that Daniel is, is strengthened. Now, I don't know whether he's strengthened by the same angel that spoke to him before or a new one, but someone from the supernatural realm strengthens him. The effect of all this has on Daniel, at first he's a bit dumbfounded, he's struck speechless, but then he finds the strength to respond after being touched, his lips are given strength and reassurance. And he's, he still feels weak, but he can continue now. Again, the being touches him and gives him more supernatural strength. It says to him to fear not, but be at peace, be strengthened and have courage. Why? Because God is surely working things out for his and his people's good. It's all been intended to give him strength. And then the heavenly uh, being returns to his original concern, the prince of Persia, and eventually he's concerned with another demonic force in the next historical kingdom. The heavenly being says that this was all aided by Michael, someone who contends for God's people in heavenly places. And then Daniel feels strengthened enough to go back home. And because he's strengthened, he turns around and serves Darius and strengthens him. God's vision is meant to strengthen a distressed man so that he can be of use in his current context. He goes back to serve Darius and Babylon after the vision, empowered. In a way, Daniel is blessed here to be a blessing and the true blueprint for his life, which we've seen throughout this book of Daniel. Jeremiah 29, verse 7 where he seeks the welfare and the good of those around him. The meaning of this portion of the passage is really no different for us, because we too are blessed to be a blessing. He works things out for our good and for his glory. It can be seen as we are empowered to help serve and express his love to our neighbors, to give him glory, to help them know that he is moving on their behalf as well. It's all happening, though, in the context of war. Now, our passage fits into the gospel story. Through that dominant theme that God is a divine warrior, working, moving on his behalf for our good. 
This is such a dominant theme in Scripture, but I don't think we ever really give it its due. The fact that angels minister and work on our behalf. If you're paying attention, that you know that Jesus himself was tempted with this knowledge to be misused. When Jesus is tempted by Satan out in the desert, the final temptation, Satan took him, I think it's the final one, or it could be the second one, took him up to the pinnacle of the temple and told him, cast yourself off of this. And then Satan quotes Psalm 91 and says, isn't it true that his angels will lift you up and guard you and protect you? Satan is obviously understanding the scripture in a real life way that angels work to preserve and protect God's people. And he's saying, Put your money where your mouth is. You believe this is the word that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? That's what you just told me in the previous temptation. Well, why don't you cast yourself off of this temple? If it's true, you won't die. And Jesus says, you shouldn't put me to the test. Again, quoting other scripture. Jesus understood this, I believe, in a real way. Satan understood it in a real way. But we tend to not believe it in a real way. This figure that comes here, I think, is the pre-incarnate Christ himself. The one who intercedes beyond all other people for our good. That's what it says in Hebrews. It says in Hebrews chapter 7 that he intercedes for us, that he is the um, one out of the order of Melchizedek. And I don't have time to preach Hebrews 11 to you this morning, but if you look up in your own time, first of all, Genesis chapter 14, and then Hebrews chapter 7, you find that Jesus, or sorry, that Abraham encounters this guy as he's entering the promised land, and he's entering, he finds this place called Salem, which is the ancient city of Jerusalem, if you see it in the word, Jerusalem. He finds Salem the first time, and he finds a guy who's both a king and a priest sitting on the throne of that city. And what does Abraham do to him? The father of the Jewish people, the, the man of faith, he offers him tribute. He gives him an offering, acknowledging that this pagan king is greater than he is. Now, that guy is named Melchizedek. It says that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not of the Levites, because he has a priesthood that is ongoing, perpetual, in Hebrews chapter 7. If you turn to Revelation, you find that at the end of all days, Jerusalem has a guy sitting on the throne who is both priest and king. Who is it? It's Jesus. And so the Bible opens with a guy sitting on Jerusalem's throne that's both priest and king, and it ends with a guy sitting on the throne who's both priest and king. And I happen to believe that they're the same person. The same one. The same one who shows up here to comfort Daniel because he fights for us. 
He is interceding for us. That's what a priest does. A priest intercedes, and he's always been interceding for us. And he never will stop interceding for us. And he uses everything at his disposal for our good, including all of his angels, all of his hosts, all of his grace. We're meant to take a passage like this and place our trust in him. And recognize that he's not always going to work things out the way we thought. This metaphor of the divine warrior is so present within uh, first century Judaism that it's one of the reasons why the people who find Jesus as the Messiah are so inexplicably confused that he's not the kind of Messiah they thought he would be. Because that Messiah was supposed to be a divine warrior. Supposed to come. And then even John the Baptist, the guy who is the forerunner for Jesus, who says, behold, the guy whose sandals I can't loose and can't wash, yet this is the guy who wants me to baptize him. And it says in Matthew chapter 3 that he will come. I baptize with water, but he will baptize with fire. And he will come with his winnowing fork, threshing his enemies. That's what John says. But we don't like to listen to John's second part of the statement. We like to acknowledge that Jesus is the one, the Messiah, but not that he's going to come with a winnowing fork. Because if we know our agricultural imagery, that means that he's going to beat the living daylights out of the, the, the chaff or the, the wheat until the chaff is blown away and the grain remains. That's what happens. But then later on in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist is in prison. And he sends his disciples to Jesus and says, can you go ask him, is he really the Messiah? Even John is a bit confused because he says, all I hear is healings and exorcisms and all sorts of lame people walking and blind seeing, and I don't hear any widowing going on. And Jesus tells his disciples to go back, yes, yes, I'm that guy. I've come to win in ways you didn't expect. But I still am the divine warrior. I'm meant to be strengthened because this divine warrior is accessible, he fights for me, and he empowers us. In your bulletin this morning as we close, there's a couple of things that I want to highlight. We're to be strengthened by engaging in prayer with this divine warrior. We're engaged in spiritual warfare, whether we recognize it or not, but the principal way that we engage in spiritual warfare is through prayer. That's how Daniel did it in the text. That's how Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 to do it as well. Prayer. We fight on our knees. We pray the kingdom into existence. And he will accomplish his will, yes, But somehow, and I'm not sure how it works exactly, because I believe in his ultimate omnipotent sovereignty over all, yet somehow I can speak into that realm and he will move. It's in the text that Daniel prays and God sends a message of comfort in response to his prayer. It's delayed, but it's still sent. I'm 
called to address the situation that I'm in and to seek him with full devotion and full attention. And sometimes that may mean that I need to go off into a place of solitude like Daniel does, like Jesus does, to pray and get away from the distractions so I know how to pray. Secondly, I'm to be strengthened by faith in the divine warriors, both present and future warfare. He fights for me now, and he will fight for me in the future. His armies battle in in the spiritual realm, and that battle affects affairs in our realm for good. We have angels working by God's design on our side for the establishment of his kingdom. And yes, my mind goes towards the idea, is, is there a demonic person in charge of America today? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know how far I'm supposed to take the geographical connection here. Not really sure. But if I was on the enemy's side and I was thinking, where would I want to influence things? I would position people all over the globe. Now, I do not think that my job in response to this is to do some sort of spiritual mapping. And if you don't know what that is, that's fine. You don't need to. I, I think it's, it's not the way that we're supposed to take this text. That I'm supposed to strategically sort of dominate a realm through prayer and take it away from a demonic force. That's not my role. Never has been. That's not what Daniel's encouraged to do here. That's not what anyone in Scripture is ever encouraged to do. But I am encouraged to pray. The question is, what do I pray? I'm encouraged by Paul to put on the whole armor of God to stand firm in him because we are in an otherworldly conflict with spiritual forces. We are to wrap up the elements of the armor, the truth, the gospel of peace, the word of God, the righteous acts, the, the faith, all of it bathed in prayer as a major way that we engage in the battle. And we fight on our knees praying for strength, that Christ makes available and for strength that he desires to impart to our brothers and sisters to be more faithful for him. I don't win the war, but I'm still in it. And the major way that we are commissioned to be engaged in this war is not the way that we normally think of spiritual warfare, but it's the way we should When Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority has been given unto me, that's him calling on the image of himself as the cloud rider from Daniel chapter 7. And then he tells his disciples, go and teach all nations and go go and make disciples. They're commissioned. That's a military term. They're commissioned. Evangelism and discipleship is the way that we engage in this spiritual warfare that we battle for people to know and be more like Christ by his grace. We're meant, just like Daniel, not to be channels, or sorry, not to be dams of grace, but channels of grace. I'll say that again. We are channels of grace, not dams. We're meant to let it flow through us. What we receive, we're meant to share, whether that be insight or courage. And while we often hear that spiritual warfare is going on when something bad happens, like someone loses their job, there's a demonic possession, or someone gets sick, I would submit to you that the primary way we engage in spiritual battle is not by praying just for these things, but above that, yeah, don't get me wrong, you pray for these things. 
But the way that you engage in spiritual battle is by engaging in the Great Commission. It is through the work of evangelism and discipleship. Spiritual warfare is not primarily about health or relief from oppression or even miracles. It's primarily about becoming like Christ as his disciples that empowers all of those things I just mentioned. That's the goal that we battle in prayer to attain. And so the question is this week, who could you share Christ with? Have you prayed about that? And prayer is meant to be our strong engagement in the fight for his faith. Let's pray. In Jesus' name, we come before you acknowledging that we rely upon your character and your grace and we have victory to engage this world that we live in for your divine glory. Um, We pray that you would give us the insight and the inclination to do so in Jesus' name. Amen.